And, and that's like an over-exaggerated example, but I think what relationship builders fail to realize is we as humans need to feel like pain with our current actions if we're going to change. We rarely, like there's a million studies in the world that say, go to the gym, you'll sleep better, you'll look better, you'll have less anxiety. I know all of that information. I still don't go to the gym. And that's where I think relationship builders miss. It's like, they're so fearful of hurting the relationship. They don't apply pressure. When in reality, if, if what you really care about is your customer's business, like you gotta help them see that stuff. Welcome to Decision Point, a podcast about overcoming adversity in sales and the growth that we experience in the process. I'm Brad Siemens. On today's episode of Decision Point, Brad sits down with Jennifer Allen, co-host of Winning the Challenger Sales Podcast and key account sales executive at Challenger. I think where we left off yesterday uh, when we were talking is we were sort of ch- talking through the Challenger sale and we were talking about your experience of being maybe relational and having to make a transition. Yeah. Does that, does that sound? So why don't we pick up there? Yeah. No. So when I started in sales, I started in account management and I was entry level working for a boss and she taught me everything I knew about sales, but she was a phenomenal relationship builder. Like we were at the time selling to heads of marketing at large enterprises. And she was just, I remember the rapport she would build was always so good. She was so easy to talk to. She was funny. And I, that formed my impression of what you need to do to be successful. And so for the following like six years, that was my means for getting time, means for trying to convert. And then the like 2008, 2009 hit. And then all of a sudden that stuff just stopped working. Right. And so at the same time, uh, the company I was working for, CEB, which was acquired by Gartner, which is where Challenger was born, they've released this work called Challenger. And I was like, this is really interesting. Let me learn a little bit more about it. And in the work, we kind of profile, you know, this, but we profile like the five different mindsets of sellers based on this analysis we did of like, now like 50,000 sellers globally. There's the book. And what was fascinating to me is I started looking through the different profiles and I was like, shoot, this relationship builder is really my mindset. Like I believe if I'm likable and accessible and easy to do business with, people will buy from me. And then when I looked at the challenger, which is the folks that were in there and they were just like super intellectually curious about why things work the way they work. And they were pushing customers on like, hey, this cost or this risk isn't going to go away. It's not just like close your eyes and hope it goes away. I started to realize the people I admired in the sales organization, they were selling like that. And so like fast forward to today, like, you know, I don't think there's a good or bad profile. It's like there's merit to all of them. But I know when I'm selling a complex sale, which I am, I'm never going to win, you know, million dollar deals by just being like really, really nice. It just doesn't cut it. Yeah. Do, um, yeah. I, nice. I'll get you a cup of coffee. Yeah, maybe um, two calls. <laughs> <laughs> It'll definitely get you two calls. That's what I'm like. uh, So, so do you think in 2000 that was? The, do you think that was a defining moment? Because at that point, relational, like the relationships, just kind of, not that they I mean, look, relationships do matter. I mean, they people do. make, and I think you got to be really careful. You know, if you get on LinkedIn and you digest information, I think what's really challenging is that we have we we want the world to be um, one easily digestible and we want it to be one like one thing. We want to be able to say this is the reason. And the challenge with that is is that typically there's multiple reasons and there's dichotomies. It's like you always need to be like this except for when you need to be like that. 
And so relationships or it's kind of like diversification in a business too. It's always good to diversify except for when it wasn't. You kind of don't know. You got to make good decisions. And so I think that's the same thing with these sales personalities is that, you know, relationships do matter, but sometimes they take a backseat to the need, right? And so you got to have your finger no, went up. On. So please, no, please, you go. Please, you I bought my finger out. That's my yeah, dirty finger. Sounds, no, yeah, I, no. I think, no, you're absolutely right. Like I hate when people walk away from looking at the challenger sale book. It's usually a byproduct of not reading it, just looking at the title and say like, they're crazy. Relationships do matter. We agree. Relationships will be forever, I believe, one of the most essential currencies of sales, but it's how you build that relationship. Like I'd be willing to bet that the relationships you build are not just because you're nice. It's because you have something really thoughtful to share. You've got something to teach them. And then they start looking at you not as a vendor, but as someone that they would go to to say, hey, can I can I pick your brain about this problem? Like it's that kind of relationship I think that buyers want. I think the reason 2008, 2009 was so monumental is like we saw a huge departure of those pre-existing relationships go. When layoffs happened, when people retired, it was like, my buddy's gone. Now what do I do? And we couldn't rebuild those relationships just by being nice to the new person because they were underwater. So that's how I kind of interpret. No, it. no, that's that's a great that's a great way to think about it. It's like, hey, part of the reason why it didn't work is because the relationships had, had had basically been submerged, right? Submerged in and the changes. You know, people getting laid off. What do you think? So, so for people who are tuning in that don't know or haven't read the Challenger, can you do a quick synopsis for us and give us just a quick little little view? Yeah, I mean, the, I'll, first I'll just say it's not like the world needed another sales methodology. There are probably hundreds of them. It wasn't like we were just sitting around like, how do we build a new one? When 2008, 2009 hit, we said, all of a sudden, all these heads of sales we worked with were coming to us saying, look, that stuff that used to work doesn't work anymore, but I still have a guys and gals that are out there killing their number. They figured out something that we haven't. We don't know what to tell our people to do. Can you just analyze this and make sense of what these high performers are doing differently? And so at the time we were, you know, a research organization, we went out and we had sales managers assess their sellers on like a hundred and some different potential things that may matter. So things you would think of, right? Like, is it because they're a great negotiator? Is it because they have a ton of product knowledge? Is it because they are, you know, really likable? And so if I'm a sales manager, I'm going through my team and on a scale of one to seven, I'm saying, all right, Mary is like a six here and a five here and, you know, so on and so forth. And then we took their performance data. Now, what happened was when you looked at the data, something really interesting happened. It was like these skills and behaviors started clustering together. That's where the names came from. Like we didn't invent these profiles. We didn't start out with this and look to use data to validate it. We simply studied what sales performers were doing out there in nature. And so when you look at the five profiles, you've got your relationship builders who just really care about the person-to-person -person relationship, being likable, accessible. You got your hard workers who are like your first ins, last out. It's all about activity numbers. You've got your um, problem solvers, super common in like highly engineered sales where because you know a lot about the technical specs, you get pulled into service stuff and you like spending time there because you don't really like hunting. And so it's like an, it's an excuse. And then you've got your lone wolves who we have no idea what the hell they're doing. They don't show up to training. They don't submit their expense reports on time. If they're good, we leave them be. If they're not, we kind of manage them out. And then you've your challengers and your challengers are truly like your debaters of the world. You can spot these guys and gals internally because the second you roll something out that's new, they're like, hey, have you thought about this? And as frustrating as that is, there's usually merit to the thing that they're pointing out or the thing that we missed. 
but they do the same thing with customers. And they're constantly thinking, why does a customer do this? And what assumption led them to believe this? And they're just very, very curious in that way. And so they bring that to the sales conversation. So when you looked at those five profiles, ultimately, then you look at performance data. And it's not that any one of them are bad, but if I'm a sales leader and I'm trying to figure out who and what do I want to build, the challenger was like 53% of the high performers in a complex sale. So it's like a, it's a horse bet, right? Like I'm not going to put my money. No, run that number, run that number by me one more time. 53% of the high performer set in a complex sale, which at the time we defined as any sale that was longer than I think it was either 45 or 60 days to close. So now you can think about complex of like, hey, it might take me 60 days to close, but I got like seven different people involved in it. I would argue complexity is much more about the dynamics of the sale, who you have to win over, all that kind of stuff. But that was kind of how the numbers that netted out. And then relationship builders were like 4% of that high performing set. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to throw, I'm going to throw out something to you and then we're going to keep talking about what you were talking about. I, I just don't yeah. want to, I don't, okay. So are there more people at the table or less? Oh my gosh. For, for our, our research, which suggests it was 5.6 in 2015, it jumped up to 11.2 on average in 2019. Okay, I've so seen the, it as high as like 30 in my deals. Okay. So the, so the numbers are going up. There's so, so I want you to talk about, uh, so let's just do this. Let's talk about this and then we'll revisit what you were talking about. So there is a big push for the B to, for, for how people purchase B2C that it is coming to B2B. And, you know, people are, are and, and typically, well, let's call it talking heads. I feel like talking heads are saying, hey, this is happening. We're going to have a, we're going to have a B2B consumer purchasing that's going to look like, that's going to look like Netflix. You've got software companies like, there's some guys out of Texas. I can't remember the name. They just, they're buying some companies at InsideSales.com. They're trying to basically, you know, their pitch line is, hey, we're doing Netflix for, for sales. I, I find it hard to believe that a complex sale would get shifted to one-click purchasing. And here's simply why. There's a lot of people involved in a complex sale. And the simple transactions that occur at Netflix, you know, if somebody buys a Netflix, seven, you know, nine, I don't even know how much it costs now, $9.99. You know, the worst, the worst that happens at a at an income with tight expenses is the wife gets mad or the husband gets <laughs> mad, right? Yes. Nobody's getting fired <laughs> over buying Netflix. But but in a but in a complex sale, the whole table could get wiped out. I love the the way you put that because in my opinion, I think the biggest problem we as sellers face today is not getting people, getting customers at the table to agree on the solution. It's getting them to agree that there's a problem at all, right? If I'm ahead of marketing and I have a head of sales, like more often than not, we have two totally different perspectives on the problem. And what happens when we can't reach agreement? We just decide to stay the same. We do nothing at all. So you see this, like our research showed that 38% of customer-led purchase journeys ended in no decision. That means like 38% of customers who actively sought out doing something different at a certain point just threw their hands up and said, forget it. Like it's just easier to deal with the problem we know versus assume all this risk. And I think the, the thing that we as sellers have to be very mindful of, and I say we because I am a seller, is just because there's a better solution doesn't mean your customer is going to do it. And when I see better, faster, like these words, I think we all hope that if we say these things, we'll bring the customer to the promised land. 
When in reality, customers know like, yeah, it might be a better approach, but the road to better is absolutely littered with like disruption. And what if my team hates my decision? What if my boss thinks I'm a bozo? Like, what if this thing goes wrong and it doesn't work the way it does? And we all like are, we're smarter now, right? We think like that. So I will look you in the face as a customer and say, I know you have a better solution, but I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing because I don't want to deal with all the other stuff. Yeah. Well, hey, no, no worries. You can just go to our website and one click your $2.5 million purchase whenever you're ready. No problem. We'll send you an invoice. <laughs> What's the most underrated skill set for sales? Mm-hmm. And there were three, there's three options, copywriting, business acumen, or putting ego aside. So I immediately, I laugh because I, th- well, as when I saw this, I'm like, copywriting is the most under rated skill because nobody picked it. So nobody thinks it's important, but it's super important because how you package and pitch something's like super important. And so somebody in here said, hey, well, our, our buyers, when we do all this research, they say they want their sellers to have more, they want their sellers to have more like business knowledge. And so when I read that, I was like, you know, here's the thing, people, if you guys are, you guys are, you could disagree with me, like total. I want to hear that if you, if you disagree, chat. Challenge me. We have a tendency to think because the buyer wants something, that's what we should do. But I think that's a dichotomy. That's sometimes that's right, but sometimes that's not right. Like being meaning this it, for them to say, "Hey, it's business acumen that people want." Maybe maybe that's true. But the buyer also people do all kinds of stuff that they tell you one thing, and then they do something completely opposite. We are like in opposition. I mean, so. Do you guys, I mean, I'm assuming you see that in the data, right? A hundred percent. Like when we did the original research behind Challenger, before we ever looked at sellers, we studied what drives loyalty in B2B customers. And if you went out and you said of all the things, like the four categories were like their perception of your company and your brand, the quality of your products, your services, the fairness of your price and the sales experience. If you had gone to any B2B customer and said, what's the most important thing? Like, what do you think they would have said? I don't know what what's the price. The price. 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 price is the most important. Right. Okay, right. Like, I missed. Price, is the, price All right. is the most important thing, right? <laughs> uh, and, like, okay. and then that's what they say, but what they did, like what their behaviors indicated was a completely separate thing, which is like, you know, like if you are a premium offering, I'm going to expect your price is going to be a little bit more. If you're at par, your price is going to be here. Like it's all relative. What actually matters is if I have a rep that comes in and says, all right, Brad, like tell me what's keeping you up at night. I hate that. Like this rep is talking to more people like me than I'll ever encounter. Tell me what should be keeping me up at night. Teach me something that I don't know by virtue of fighting fires. Like I don't think customers would have ever like told us that had we asked them directly. It was through studying suppliers they picked and suppliers they didn't and then rating them that you realize, man, they do have a preference towards suppliers that actually are thoughtful and teach them something. Well, I think you got to be really careful with the questions too. Cause like when you say that, tell me what's keeping you up at night, I immediately am like super. Oh, <laughs> awesome. Not cause we've heard that, but just cause my, like, come on, bro. like, okay. I'm a CEO of a business. I have multiple responsibilities. I have a lot keeping me up at night. Sure. Like, and I'm a dad and, and I got kids and, you know, and, 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 so it's like, I, I just think that's a lot. You just got, I, I feel like you just gotta be so careful with the questions Awful. that you ask people. It's lazy. It's like, Hey, I have the time to learn about your business. Can you educate me? You're like, I'm a CEO. I've got a million things I could be doing. 
educating you as a sales rep is just not one of them. And that's the mistake. Like I think when the whole like be more customer focused and customer led thing came out, sellers took that and said, all right, I have to stop talking about me. Now I have to ask the customer what they need. But I think what we failed to appreciate, like when that evolution started happening is what's that like for the customer who has 20 reps calling them and every one of them is saying like, what are you, what are you working on? What's your biggest priority? I think that's why Challenger started to set itself apart because the expectation is in the world we live in today, you don't have to be perfect and nor should you preach. And this is a thing I got wrong a lot at the beginning. I thought I had to be spot on and tell the client, this is what should be keeping you up at night. It's incredibly naive, right? It's, I think it's balancing question, really smart, thoughtful questions with your homework and being able to say like, I don't have the full picture, but here's what I learned. And, and here's where I'm looking for you just to kind of help me out. Like, what am I missing out of this picture? And then I think people lean into it, right? Because you're like, okay, this person clearly did a little bit of work to try to understand me, understand my business. They're not just showing up being like, help me. Yeah. That's a difference, right? Yeah, I, I think it, you know, I don't, I think it's such a, so, so there's something you sort of highlighted there. I think it, you got to be careful when you take sales methodologies and pl- apply them to prospecting. Cause I see that a lot. Like people take the challenger sale, try to apply that to prospecting. And then that just makes people upset. That's not the purpose. Prospecting isn't selling. It's too, totally different activities. Not that you might not have some crossover, but like you call, if you take everything you learned in the challenger, you turn this into the outbound sales script and I call you, you're going to be one very angry person or not angry. It's just, I mean, there's no relationship. There's no, there's no, you got to start with something, right? Um, Well, I mean, I I agree and I disagree. Okay. Disagree. Yeah. Tell, I think if you say like, Hey, I've noticed like if I'm, you know, if I'm selling, I think, I believe that you are losing to price and you have the wrong answer. Like that is set. Like, what do we do as humans when someone tells us we're Come wrong back. We immediately yeah. get defensive, right? And no, you're wrong. And who are you? And right. I don't even know you. Right. But if you ask a provocative question that indicates, Hey, I've looked at your business. I'm curious about this. I don't know if it's a problem or not, but just, is it like, help me understand. Is this something you guys are thinking about? I think you can bring insight to a, I certainly do it every day. Like you can bring insight to a prospecting conversation. I think customers value it, but to your point, you have to be very careful. So many people took challenger as I'm going to go tell all my clients and prospects they're wrong. And that's, I mean, that's a terrible outcome. What would you do if someone called you and were like, Brad, you, you know, you're running your business the wrong way. You'd be like, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, definitely. So the, the thing about the challenger that makes me so that, that just has my mind. I think with any of these methodologies, I, I think I think the thing that's that is super interesting is I think there's a lot of them that would work, will work. I think authenticity is really important, and I think authenticity is really hard to teach. Oh, and yeah. if you do teach it, it takes a long time. And so, my question for you, kind of from looking at the stats, and I was trying to flip back through this to find the numbers. It's kind of early on in the book, but it basically says, hey, this is the percentage of people that are relational sales. These are the people that are, you know, challenger. And I think like 27% were challenger here. I think I had it. So the hard workers, 21, challengers, 27, relationships, 21, lone wolves, 18, reactives, 14. Do you think under these percentages, I mean, can the hard work, I mean, obviously you guys believe the hard worker can adopt more challenging challenger attributes. Is it harder? Like what, what is it about the, cha- I mean, some of this, like when I read this, some of this seemed like dumb, like I, I'm probably a challenger. So I read this right. and I'm like, duh, duh, yeah, I got that. 
Um, and that, but that's the point, right? Like we did not invent challengers. And this, I love when people on LinkedIn like bash challenger, like this is nothing new. I've been selling like this for 20 years. It's like, great. You're a natural challenger. You get it. You're probably doing really well. But like the guy or gal that thinks that they need the person relationship, what they miss. And I, this is the fascinating part to me. Like when you look at relationship builders versus challengers, the thing that really sets the two apart is challengers seek out constructive tension right? Like they know we as humans don't change our behavior unless we perceive that there's like a huge risk associated with what we're doing today. So I always use this example of like, I've really fallen off with going to the gym and I've done it because I don't perceive that I'm going to have like a heart attack if I don't go to the gym three days a week. But if I went to the doctor and the doctor said, Jen, if you don't get your butt in the gym and do cardio, you're at risk for a cardiac like arrest. You can sure bet I would go into the, the gym tomorrow because I'd feel like if I didn't, I might die, Right. And, and that's like an over-exaggerated example, but I think what relationship builders fail to realize is we as humans need to feel like pain with our current actions if we're going to change. We rarely, like there's a million studies in the world that say, go to the gym, you'll sleep better, you'll look better, you'll have less anxiety. I know all of that information. I still don't go to the gym. And that's where I think relationship builders miss. It's like they're so fearful of hurting the relationship. They don't apply pressure. When in reality, if, if what you really care about is your customer's business, like you got to help them see that stuff. Yeah. And I think we talked about, we talked about this kind of in our pre, pre-conversation, which is there's a lot of, and this is probably the racial sale, right? The racial sale wants to value the relationship, doesn't want to have any pushback, is afraid that any tension might cause the relationship to be get fractured. And um, they're afraid to hear the word no. And what I, my experience has been, if there's no friction, there's no deal. Yes. Like there is no, we are not buying anything if there's not, if there's not some, if there's not some fire. When I say fire, not like fire at the, at the manufacturing facility. So we're going to buy something to fix the fire, like fire yeah. in the deal. There's got to be some tension. There's got to be some tension. And I think that, and I think that's why it's so important. And I know Josh Braun, we talked about him too. Yeah. Such an important, he talks a lot about detached, being detached. And uh, he actually had a little thing on here where he said he was trying to get somebody, somebody was trying to buy his uh, services and he's like, I'm seven fifty an hour. And they're like, how about two fifty? <laughs> he's like, I'll read it. I'll read it. Cause it's another one of those, of those that's like, is like really good when it, when it pulls up here, but you got to be detached, right? You can't, you got, and, and I think that's when the friction and the fire comes in place. You got to be comfortable with, with it being uncomfortable. I love, I mean, I remember when we were talking before you said something and you were like, when I talk, I think it was like when I talk to someone and it's just, everything's easy and everything's yes. Like that's a red flag to me. That was something in our second book that we saw is like people that are natural challengers like you, they seek out the skeptics. They don't want someone who's going to let every vendor in the door. And I just thought it was fascinating that you said it absent of us even talking about it. And you're like, yeah, I want to look for that person who pushes back, who objects, who's like, leaned in versus the person's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah, yeah. is never buy. I mean, never. No, buy. they never do. Never <laughs> um, and, and I don't know. And I like this, you know, I got a handful of questions I like to ask people is like, why do people who are super excited, you know, never buy? I mean, somebody said, you know, it had to do with the fact that, you know, they were never convinced there was a problem anyways, you know, that, that could be, and I, I felt like that was true. There's another, there's an interview we had a couple of weeks ago and, and you kind of brought this on as we were talking about multiple people at the table. And I, I, and I, this sort of came to mind. This particular guy's founder starting a business, starting a, he's got a software business 
and I can't remember exactly how we got into the conversation, but he basically goes on to say that when it comes to solving problems, we have a tendency to solve problems from like whatever our, our strength is. So if you're a uh, marketer, uh, if you're a sales guy, if you're an engineer, if you're a scientist, you're going to take that whatever binge you have, and that's how you see the world. And I thought this was really interesting that he said, I think in a lot of cases, there's multiple right answers, right? It's just like, which which one of these personalities are you going to try to solve the, the problem? And I think that's true in the sale too. And I think you have a responsibility as a, as a buyer to help them understand whether your solution's the best, the best fit or not. Oh my gosh. I love what you just said. Cause I think we are like, sometimes as sellers, we fall into this track of always pushing our thing, but how much credibility do you get? And I, and I love doing this when you hear someone say a problem and you step back and say, rather than push my thing, let me show them three or four ways they can solve the problem. One of which is with me, but two or three, maybe with someone else. Like that immediately puts you in a position of credibility. You're, you're out of that like vendor role and you're into that consultant role where you're, I'm really trying to help you see the alternatives. The problem is I think a lot of times organizations don't train sellers to even understand the other alternatives. So they do what they know, which is they pitch their product. Yeah. And, and I think there's a, there's a quote by D David Ogilvy that says the smart ones know more. And I think that's true in the sales cycle. I mean, he might've been the best sales guy. Like I've read every book by <laughs> David Ogilvy, you know, great copywriter. I think he might've, he was a, he definitely was a challenger. And I think that he, I think he's right when, when it comes to selling and, and as you get into a complex sale, that becomes more important, right? That you know, that you read and really understand what the, the product or who you're selling, you know, their problem that you've really spent time. Cause he said, Hey, the first thing he did when he got it, so he really had no business becoming a marketing or becoming an advertising head, but he decides, Hey, he wants to get in advertising. He's got a brother that's in advertising. So he opens this office and what he said he did was he put, you know, he put a list of the hundred or 25 clients he wanted to do business with. Shell was, Shell was on the list. And uh, when he goes out to go to the Shell meeting, he had read every marketing slick they had. He'd read all their um, 10Ks. He understood deeply what their, you know, problems were from a marketing perspective. And then he presented a solution and he challenged them on the direction that they thought they were going to go as a, you know, as a brand. And they end up being a client for, you know, you know, his primary client for X, you know, XX years. But, but, but I think that, you know, a lot of salespeople just don't do the work. I, I completely, completely agree. And I think all of this stuff we start to see where it's like, oh, we're going to have a seller free experience. I agree with you. Like, I, I don't think you can buy a massively complex solution just with the click of a button. Maybe we'll be proven wrong. Who knows? Like, what the future Yeah, is. we could. It's possible. Yeah, yeah. It's possible we might be wrong. But I will say, I think it's, it's what customers don't want is the seller experience where the seller brings no value. Like, that I totally, if you, if you're just calling a seller because you can't get a price on a website, like, of course, the better option is a seller free experience. But if we as sellers are engaging in conversations where we're doing what you just said, like helping people see different alternative solutions, helping people understand like pitfalls they haven't aren't aware of, like that I think is a conversation. There will always be merit to that. But that's on us as sellers to distinguish from just I'm an order taker versus I'm like, you know, shaping what this customer thinks they need. That's two very different things. You know, sales is so complex, you know, so complex. There's so many different types of personalities that work in different types of sales. So it's, it's yeah, it's it's just super. I mean, I find no greater joy than to, than to you know, interact with people and get them like I, I know that selling is particularly on what you're selling. Right. It can get like a really bad name. 
you know, there's like, there's definitely a hierarchy of sales, right? But, but I, I think it's a real help. I mean, to be able to, to see a problem, to help somebody see a problem, to have a conversation, have them identify, you know, I find a lot of joy. And, and yeah, I mean, you think about like car salesmen have the worst, re- I mean, when you think of like bad, sleazy salespeople, people always throw car salesmen in that camp. I think the exact opposite. I think car salesmen were at the forefront of a more informed buyer. Like who in the last 10 years is ever just wandering onto a car lot being like, tell me about what you got, right? Like they were the first people in my mind that were really confronted with buyers that knew what they want, knew how much they wanted to pay for it. And the best ones changed, but people yes. always say like, oh, car salesmen. Well, so now yeah. we're all car salesmen. We're all really? car salesmen. No, yeah. so, that's a, so that is a great point. So I think what's happened in the car sales space, like I, I walked into the car, I buy a new truck, I go into the car lot, you know, they're all kind of hanging out there. And what I, what I thought was super interesting is like, I had a, and I, when I went to the lot, I thought they should be selling different. And here's what I thought, that, here's what I thought they should be doing. They really should be asking me like, Hey, Hey, before I take you out on the car lot, tell me the story you're telling yourself in your head. Yes. What are you, what are you telling yourself? And I'll tell you, so like in this particular situation, Hey, I'm telling myself, I got a bunch of hockey players. I, I need to have a truck. I got a bunch of hockey players. I got a bunch of stuff. to do. So, so, he, you know, somebody should have sat down with me before he even went on the lot and started asking me questions about like, you know, what's the story that you're telling yourself? What, because we're not buying a car. We're buying, I, I feel like you're buying, I'm buying a story. Like there's, there's something I want to, tr- there's some story I want to tell myself and I need this guy. I need somebody. So that's where I felt like the sales guys could have done so much better is, you know, I can get everything I want on the phone. I, I mean, I can download, I know how much price, like, so I bought a used Tahoe. This is probably seven, eight years ago. And here's the stuff that I wanted to know. And nobody could answer for me when I bought, when I bought this is, Hey, how many thousands of miles can I drive this thing before it's broke? I've never, I've always leased a vehicle. I've never driven. I've never bought, I've never not bought something that was new. So I'm buying this used Tahoe. I want to know, like, is it going to go a long time? Is it going to go a short time? Like, how's this all, how's this all going to go down? And nobody answered any of those questions. Nobody answered any of those questions in that, in that case. Obviously I'm buying lots of, buying lots of cars, but. Yeah, but that right there, like that's, that's challenger, right? Like if that rep had done that, they would have been seeking to understand your current state, right? Your current state is your belief system around what you think you need. And I think too often we as sellers jump over that. And instead of understanding why, that customer believes they need to do something or be something or whatever the case may be. We just try to convince them that whatever we have to sell them is so great that of course they'd want it. But that this is where I think sales gets fascinating is you start to understand, like I went to a car lot, I don't know, six months ago and I, we were giving my car to our daughter and I went on the car lot and there was like eight different trim models for a Jeep Grand Cherokee. And I had no idea. I mean, I had spent all this time online. I'm like, you're a I don't super know. sweet mom buying your daughter a turkey. <laughs> I mean, I went out and bought grandma cars for my kids. I bought, I like, I bought Lincoln. No, the turkey was for me. My oh, old okay, okay. I, oh, okay. I was thinking, man, you're like really cool. My kids, that's no. what my kids wanted. They're like, we're not driving cars unless we get Jeep Cherokees. I'm like, get a life. We're getting you, we're getting you Lincolns. So I got some Lincolns. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, I go on the car lot and I'm like, I actually, I think I had a great sales rep. He said like, what do you think you want to buy today? And I said, I don't know. I think I want to get a Grand Cherokee. He said, why? And I was like, well, I have a Highlander and I kind of like the size of it. And where I'm confused is, you know, do I need this one or this one? And then he's really started doing great discovery. He's like, 
where are you going? How much are you traveling? Like, who's in the car with you? Do you have pets? And he was asking me all these questions. And then he was able to provide like a really solid recommendation. And I trusted him because I felt like he was listening to me. Right. And I felt like he was really trying to understand, like, what does she want out of this? Instead of just directing me to like, this is the best one because this is the one everybody your age buys or whatever like that. So I think, you know, again, I think, I think when we just push the thing we have to sell absent of doing great discovery, absent of understanding the current state, that's where I think we fall down. And then we just hope like our product is going to show them off so well that they'll just, they can't resist buying. But No, like you, you talked about trust early on, this kind of no like trust. We talk about this, particularly market, marketers. We, they got to know who we are. They like us. They got to trust us. I'm not sure that I believe that. Oh, they obviously have to know you, right? I'm not sure they have to like you and they sort of have to trust you, but that might, that, that might not even matter. So tell me what you think about that little clip. I like that question. They don't have to know you. They don't have to like you, but I do think trust is important. But I think the way that we've perceived we need to build trust is totally outdated. Like I think I trust people that I believe understand me, listen to me, and have smart things to say, right? Like I would trust someone who I think is credible, but we don't get credibility by saying like, I work for X company and it's this big and we work with all these customers. And like, I don't think that's true because it's not about me. It's about the company. But I, in our own like work with sellers, there was a company, I forget which one it was, but they did this experiment where they account managers who had been working with these clients for years, who the clients loved. And they said, we're going to try something. We're going to move them off. We're going to move a new rep on. And the customer freaked out. They said, no, you know, I love Mary. She's my favorite. Don't do this. And they said, let's just try it for 30 days. 30 days left. We'll come back. If you want to have her back, you can have her back. And they slotted in challengers. And what was fascinating is the customers 30 days later said, they called them up, said, do you want Mary back? And they said, I love Mary. Like, I don't want to let Mary down, but I actually want to keep the guy that I have now. And that to me shows that even customers sometimes overvalue like, the relationship that they have, but sometimes in relationships we get lazy, right? Like we already have it, so we don't have to work as hard. And I think that's the part about you don't need to be liked; you just need to show up and add value. Right. I, I think the thing. I think there. You know, back to you kind of. And I don't know if this is we have generalities or what. You know. So there's some words, right? Relationships. I don't think we do a good job of defining those. What it means to trust somebody. I don't think we do a good job of defining defining that and and I think that in the when it comes to challenging or cha- and I, I think it more of as like curiosity I was yes. almost gonna say like you should call it the curious seller which sounds totally lame and not awesome <laughs> you wouldn't have sold very many books like you wouldn't I have I, I just though. I just envisioned they were like all right let's do curious and then they're like no nah, I don't think that's gonna work yeah yeah <laughs> that's dumb no it yeah. was fun fact it was almost called the new relationship builder but we thought no one would read it so they were like pick something more provocative I think the challenger was good, but I do think it is a curiosity. So then it comes up with the question is like, you know, can you be, cause, cause what I, I mean, what, what I really am is curious. Like I'm just naturally curious. Now I have to balance my curiosity. Like I feel like it's constantly, I got to be careful cause I will get you someone in front of me and I will grill them. And all of a sudden I can tell I'm making them uncomfortable cause I'm at, so I got to balance that. Right. Like, <laughs> My poor kid's friends are like, we're not talking to your dad. Man. He's like asking, he does not, it's on a need to know basis. He doesn't need to know all this stuff he's asking. Us. Uh, like, what do your parents do? And where do you guys live? And when you guys go to Christmas, what kind of stuff do you do? And like, if you were going to get Christmas presents, what kind of Christmas presents do you like? They're like, are you buying Christmas presents? I'm like, no, I'm just curious. Um, 
So can you teach, do you, I mean, obviously you can teach curiosity. Can, so, so you got, so let's, let's stay on the word curiosity. Yeah. Where does empathy fit in here? Cause I think that's also a word that's not defined real well. Oh gosh. I love like everything you're saying. So curiosity willing, and this is where people get caught up with challenger. Challenger does not mean you go in and you know everything, right? Like I think the- That's called a jerk. (laughs) Yeah. Or another word. I think challengers are naturally curious, but they're also, and this has been so important in the last couple of years, they are empathetic that if you are going to go in and show customers like, Hey, there's something you missed and it's costing you a lot. If you're rubbing it in and you're trying to be the right one and they're the wrong one, you could be right and you will still not win business with that customer. I think where we have to be really empathetic is to say, we understand why you do this thing this way, right? Like for a long time, this worked and it was a great answer, but this thing over here changed. And instead of making the customer the enemy, you make the chain, like the thing that changed, the information, the assumption, whatever that is, that's the enemy. And you, you both are on the same side against it instead of being like seller versus customer. Okay. Here's, here's what there, here's what make, makes me think of. So okay. kids play, my kids play hockey and play, we play two games on Sunday. The first game, the fans don't like the refs. These they're from wherever they're from. I'm not going to say on the air, but they're from, <laughs> <laughs> don't want to pick out a certain town here. So anyways, so they, there's two calls they're hooking. They didn't like it. They're yelling about it. And it gets really, it gets really intense. And at some point, you know, it sort of dies down. There's a break. There's another game. And the second game was just bananas. And this guy gets thrown out of the game. And he walks He he, walk, he walks out of the rink. And then he puts new clothes on and comes back in. So a new hat, new sunglasses. I call him the Florida Georgia Lion because that's what he looked like, the, the lead singer <laughs> from Florida Georgia Lion. So he walks out, comes back in. Then he gets in a fight with the rep. But here's the thing. The problem was real. Had we all gotten around the ref? Like, had we all started? If I wanted to tame this situation, because I thought about this, because it got so crazy, cops get called. It was just totally out of control. Kids, twelve, they're twelve years old, totally just insane. But I thought to myself as I left the rink, I was like, you know what? I really needed to do, and there's a point to this, because you were talking about they need to be on the same side of the problem. What I really needed to do is start yelling it. If I started yelling at the ref, making them feel like we were all on the same side, this would not have happened. We would have joined together. And that's similar to the sales problem here. It's like you've got two opposing problems and a problem. Now, it may be a problem or it may not be a problem, right? Like it, these refs, in my opinion, weren't bad, right? They were not awful. They made great calls. They were, they're were 18-year-old kids coaching 12-year-old hockey. They're yeah. going to make some mistakes. That's how you want it. There's no other way for these kids to learn how to, to play to ref if they don't coach 12-year-olds. And they were equally calling them both ways. But the only way this, this situation was getting neutralized is if ever if both sides were were upset with the ref, and I think that's the same thing. I know that's kind of a long story, but I, I think that's kind of how it is with a sale. Is like you got to get on the same side of the you got to get on the same side of the problem, and you have to make a decision as a as a sales rep. Hey, maybe this isn't the like in this particular case, it wouldn't have been authentic for me to say the refs were horrible because they weren't. So you know, yelling at the ref, I mean, maybe it would have neutralized the situation, but I think the same thing applies in a sales scenario, which is. You've got to believe when you start try to get on the same page with the with the client. You got to believe that that you guys are actually on the same page of this problem, not that you're just trying to get them to to buy your you know buy your thing. Buy your stuff, yeah. Like this is a classic example for us. There's a lot of like when we get leads, a lot of times people will come in and say like, "We want negotiation training." 
because we keep losing on price, right? And it's like, one way I could do that is to be like, you're wrong and you're not losing on price. You're losing because early on you're not differentiating, right? And that's like, I don't know, it's kind of icky. I don't think anybody wants to call in to ask for something and be told like, you're stupid for what you're asking. (laughs) Right. I think though, like, and what I, what I love that you do and just our couple conversations we've had, like you're a really great storyteller. And I think it's such an underappreciated skill in sales. Our team actually was, was spent a day yesterday in Chicago doing our own storytelling training, but you tell a story that allows someone to realize, shoot, like I can see myself in this story. This is me. And then you give them the space to be like, Oh, wait, maybe that's more of what we should be talking about. It's the same thing. You're selling the same thing. You're just getting from A to B in a totally different way. Yeah. I don't know if I, I mean, I just, I might drive, I think it drives people crazy actually, but I, I just think that way. Like I, you know, we had a client, we had a big deal. I get brought in as the CEO. They're on a, they're using a competitor and I just cut to the chase. I said, Hey, call this guy, Matt, because yeah, Matt is in front of me here. Uh, so we'll just call <laughs> this guy, Matt, because that's what I just saw. So I, I said to the client, I said, Hey, look, You've been using this vendor forever. You called us up. You complained. Sounds like a marital spat to me. Now, 80% of buyer or 80%, I said, you know, bear with me and I hope I don't offend you. But here's here's the, here's the reality. 80%, like a, almost, maybe it's higher than 80%. I read a stat in the 90s, like not in 1990, but in the, in the high 90s, <laughs> that people are in an abusive situation, don't leave their spouse. And that's similar to the situation that we have here. So what I want to know before we go any further is if I go get the U-Haul truck and I pull it up to your place, are you coming out of the house? Are you pulling the blinds down? Oh, that is good. And he said, he said, I'm coming outside. I said, well, how do we get to the truck? Like walk me through how you get, how are we getting out? How we come outside? And he walked me right through it. He walked me how he was coming out of the truck, what we had to do, who we had to talk to, who was going to stop the deal. You know, I was lucky I didn't, you know, I, I am cognizant. Like, you know, I, I was, as I'm saying this, I'm like, I hope this guy, you know, didn't have something like his wife didn't leave him last week. Yeah. So be like real sensitive. <laughs> I, I mean, I didn't know how else to talk about it. I was like, Hey, we got, you know, cause otherwise if you can't tell me how you're getting out of your house, like there is no, there is just no way or reason for us to continue to talk. Just go back in, shut the door, and we'll hang the phones up and walk out of here. But that's the thing. Like That was the other thing in the second book that we talked a lot about was when you look at who high performers spend their time with and how they do it, it's exactly what you described. Like average performers tend, there he goes, average performers tend to like talking to a group of buyers that we call talkers. And talkers will take your call. They'll make all the time in the world for you. They'll open the dirty laundry on all the stuff that's happening in their business. But when it comes time to say, hey, I need you to go and pound your fist on the table for us. All of a sudden, they're nowhere to be seen. There's nothing coming out of their mouth. And it's like, if you don't do that due diligence up front, I think one of the places where average performers get really lost is you spend so much time with these people and it ends up just being like nice people talking to nice Nice people, people. anything done, you know? And like, like really making sure, is this person worth your time instead of the other way around? I think is a really important quality of great sellers. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Well, this has been a great, as you know, as last time, this was awesome. I had like <laughs> such a good, I hope you enjoyed it as much oh as- Oh my gosh, you're so fun to talk to. I think a lot of, of the things that we try to teach, I always love talking to people that like are like, I feel like I'm a natural challenger because you can tell right off the bat you are. And you've got like just a different perspective on things. I love the way you tell stories. This has been really fun. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. As always- Uh, If you want more information on the podcast, go to monsterconnect.com forward slash podcast. Uh, You can get last season's 
uh, last year's episodes. You can get all the new episodes for this year. And as always, remember, don't let what you can't do interfere with what you can. Until next time.